Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. It's one of the great questions of time. Why would God create the universe and everything in it? Well, who am I to answer that question? But scripture is amazingly clear at what God is up to. So in this really long message, I'm going to do my best to connect the dots and let's uncover why God does what he does. Starting a brand new message series today and... um I'm just really grateful that you guys would be here to be part of it. This series is called Superstructure, and I'm just really, really glad to see you here. Because all year long, all year long up to this point, with the exception of July, when we took some time off, all I can think about talking about is us standing and building our house. Because the storm is raging, am I right? more now than ever. I started talking about it back in January. And I said this last week, if I'd have known then what I know now, I would have changed the way I talk about it because the storm is worse than I even thought it would be then. And it is destroying a lot. And Jesus said it would, right? He said the storm would blow and he said some would fall but others will stand. And the ones that will stand are the ones that build their house. And I just want for you to have a strong, storm-worthy house, a house that does not fall. I want you to be strong. And so that's all I can think about. It's all I can preach about during this season of time. And so we're spending the whole year on it. July was a little different. We sort of took a little time off. And we talked about our trip to Israel, and it was a good series, by the way. Ken and Jeff and Justin did a great job on that, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did a great job on that. Uh, But now I just want to talk about building your house again. And so we're going to do some things differently today. My idea on this whole series is, is this simple idea, that the materials you use determine the quality and value of your home. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, what you choose, I mean, you, you think about it. I, I drive around and I look at all of the beautiful, beautiful North Georgia mountain cabin homes. And, you know, there's, there, there's beautiful homes that we have around here. And people have built some great, great edifices, you know, and they're wonderful. But I think about the time that I spent in India. And part of my time there was time where I spent with kids in the slums of Calcutta. And in the slums, it's row after row after row of these houses. Some of them are like this one. They're really mud homes with plaster and paint. They, they literally build with whatever they can find that has been discarded. They barely get any rainfall there, so the mud homes you know, will last for a while before they have to kind of be reworked. But most of the homes have an inner structure of branches. In the slums, most of the homes, and they're just row after row after row, all crammed in together where they've found branches. And they've zip-tied or tied these branches together to form the structure of the house, and then they've put mud on the outside. And this is what 
people have lived in for generations. Say, let's just pretend a, a monsoon really comes to that area. Well, will that house stand? I was in one house and there were several others like it where they had built the structure of the branches, but the walls were all made of newspapers, taped together newspapers. Is that home storm worthy? Is that, I'm asking you, is that home storm worthy? No, a little gust of wind is gonna come along, the house is gonna float away like a kite. I don't know what's gonna to happen to it, but it's not gonna stand. And I think about the American Christian today, the American Christian today. And I think about how we all have kind of built our house and we've done so very loosely, very irresponsibly. We don't really know what we think about God. We don't really know how to believe about God. We don't know what God's word says. We don't understand who God really is. We don't have a good vision of God. And my question is, are we building a Christian slum? I mean, are we just building a neighborhood, a community, a, a nation of Christians whose houses are just gonna be gone in a second? And I don't want that for you. I want you to be strong. The Apostle Paul tells us uh, that no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, and that's who? Jesus Christ. And he says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on judgment day, this is not even a storm, this is judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive an award, a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Man, I don't want that for you. I want you to receive the reward for building your house. I want your family to be strong. I want your neighbors to be strong. I want you to be strong. And so that's why we're doing this whole series all year long about this. And that's why I'm starting the Superstructure series. That's why I've provided a ton of resources for you. I, I just, I really, my heart, I'm, I can't tell, are you getting the idea that my heart beats for you on this? I, I really don't ever do this, but I built a web page. I don't build web pages, but I learned all the tricks and um, I built a web page for you. And uh, you can see on this card that was on your chair when you came in or, or every other chair or so, that there's a whole page that I've built at this location of stand resources for you. You can go back and you can listen to all my previous messages. All the future ones are previewed on there. The books that we're reading, all that stuff is there for you and I'm gonna be building more onto it so you can stand. And I'm providing this for you because I want this for you. I want you to stand. If you don't listen to anything else on that page, I, I pray that you'll go back and listen to my very first message this year because it contains the essential idea of this whole year for me. And if you don't catch anything else, I hope you'll catch that one. And I, that's why I provided that for you. That's why we do these notebooks, these little three ring binder notebooks, they're available for you. These are available for you right out there in the, in the lobby. We charge five bucks because they cost us $6 each. So we charge five bucks. Uh, I'm not kidding, we lose money on these, uh, but all your note sheets are three ring hole punched. I know, I know not everybody likes to write on paper. Some of y'all have watched you, man. You are far more proficient with your thumbs than you are right here. Have you seen those people? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they just, I mean, they type like a hurricane. What? 
Thumb Raiders, yeah, Thumb Raiders. That sounds really oddly weird. Uh, <laughs> that's it, yeah, it's in a song, okay. So yeah, some of y'all are good at that and you use the Bible app, please do that. Uh, you can save your notes for future reference there. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that even if you're not a, a digital person that you use uh, and can refer back to notes, I, I've learned in my life the value of taking notes. Uh, I'm a better person because of the notes I take, the books I read, and the people I meet. And that's about it. I mean, I'm the same person five years from now as I am today if I'm not taking notes, if I'm not meeting new people, and if I'm not reading new books. So I really, I really encourage you um, to take notes and to get one of these. Annie has them out there in the, in the front area. And um, I would really, I really hope that you'll use those. So that's why I'm doing all this stuff all year long. But this message series is a little bit different. This message series comes from the, the, my experience of um, being in our life group. I, I don't know if you guys were there that night. I'm not sure. We were meeting out at the park. And uh, several of us were just sitting around in lawn chairs. And uh, some, of, some of our guys just started asking some questions. Well, what do we really believe about this or what do we really believe about that? What is, doesn't the Bible say something? I mean, is heaven for real a thing? And what's the story on hell? I'm not sure. I like the idea of heaven. Not sure. I like the idea of hell. And some of these questions were. You remember, Greg? You were there. Some of these questions were sort of. I was like, wow, wow. Do we really need to go back and talk about these? Clearly, we do. And so I thought about trying to explain theology uh, to my son when he was a young teenager in like 20 minutes. And I can't. <laughs> but that's kind of the idea I'm trying to base this on. And 20 minutes sure is, is, is too little, especially today. That's why they cut some songs, because today I'm doing something different. Today, <laughs> we're going to do a little theology. And I'm going to try to answer the big question of the universe. Why? God, why would you create the universe? Why would you create the world? Why would you make me? Why is this what it even is? And I'm gonna to try to do that in a pretty short amount of time, so no pressure. I mean, all the songwriters, all the book writers, all the deep thinkers, all the philosophers, all the poets, uh, all the prophets, everybody's been trying to answer this question and nobody can quite get their head around it. And I'm sure we won't fully get it either, but you might be surprised how clear some of this really is. So show me your Bible real quick. Everybody just hold up your Bible. If you got a paper one, I want to see it. Good. If you got a digital one, let me see it. Come on. If you got a digital one, I want to see them. Come on, hold them up. Hold them up. I'm going to ask you to do that again later on. Good, good, good. I want you to use your Bible today, but I'm not going to ask you to turn to a verse because you know me, I, I'll, I'll have a key verse that I use and I'll use a lot of other verses. Today, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. And so just get ready. It's going to be a lot of rapid fire stuff. And I'm actually taking stuff that I developed for a class that I taught a while back. And I've kind of adapted it. And I'm going to use it this morning to try to deal with this. And we're going to try our best to answer the question why. And I hope you'll stick with me. Take notes, follow along, and be ready to hold your Bible up again later on, okay? All right, here we go. Are you ready? One of you is ready. Are we ready? Okay, I just need to, I, get, I need to get some buy-in from you every now and then because I'm very insecure. Okay. <laughs> so, John, 
the apostle is in the spirit because he's been banished to the island of Patmos where he is effectively a prisoner. But God shows up and he speaks to John and he gives him the revelation of what is to come. John hears the voice behind him and it says, come up here and he turns and he sees Jesus in all of his glory. Not future glory, present glory. It's an amazing sight. And he catches a glimpse of the throne room of God. I wish I had time to go into all of it, but here's a little bit of what, just a little bit of what John saw in the throne room of God. Here's how he describes it. In the center and around the throne were four living beings. How many beings? Four, four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. They are clearly moms because they can see everything. The first, look at this description. This is crazy. The first of these four living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. What? Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, they keep on saying, here's what they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. Okay, let's just stop for just a second. Creatures with wings full of eyes who he can't fully describe. He's just trying his best. Oh, it's like an eagle. It's like a person. It's like an ox. He's just trying to describe. What are these things? I have no idea. I, I don't know. A lot of people try to define them. I don't think you can define them. Clearly these things, whatever they are, are above us. I mean, they fly. They are higher and they are a higher order of being than you and I are. Maybe they're part of the heavenly host. Here they are in the throne room, the closest things to God, bizarre looking creatures. And what is their one job? What? Their one job is to praise God. God, day and night, the only thing they do is they praise the Lord. So my question is, why does God need that? Why does God need that? Does God need constant affirmation like I do? Is God somehow insecure? Is he not real comfortable with himself and he needs someone to affirm? Or is he narcissistic? Does God be like, oh man, you always gotta be praising me. You know, is he, is he narcissistic all about himself? Why would God create this situation? Hmm. Okay, let's just rewind. Think about this. Go back to the very beginning of the story. The creator God speaks everything into existence, right? He speaks the stars and the planets and the galaxies, the mountains, the oceans, the creatures, everything. And he calls it all what? What does he call it all? It's good, it's good, he's happy. He is pleased with everything he's created till he 
creates us, and he calls us something different. What does he call us? Two thumbs up. Very good, right? Very, very pleased with us. He makes everything the way he wanted it to be. Everything pleases him, and then almost immediately he loses control. And everything seems to fall apart. Does that generate other questions in you? Is God incompetent? And if so, why would we pray to him? Why would we trust him for anything at all? Now, let me ask you the question. Does that sound like the God that you and I worship? Narcissistic or incompetent? Does that sound like the God we worship? No, it doesn't. We know better, don't we? <laughs> we know better. But if you're just taking these things out of context, all of a sudden, you might ask some questions. But see, here's what I want to show you. I think that if God is who he says he is, in both Revelation and in Genesis, there must be something else going on here. There's something more than simply creatures and sinful people going on here. And so today, what I would like to do is I would like to hopefully uh, show you what I'm calling one unifying theory of everything. I'd like to show you one theory of all of the universe that will hopefully not just answer the question why, but set everything into place, all the big questions. What's God's purpose for the universe? Why was Jesus destined to die? What really happens on judgment day? Why do bad things happen to good people? And what to expect at the end? And so much more, so much, much, much more. I believe that if we can kind of sort of just a little bit get our head around this one unifying theory, it'll bring into our lives an amazing confidence and hope and peace and power. I believe we'll be able to see him more clearly, experience him more powerfully, and walk as overcomers much more if we can just grasp this idea. And I don't think it's a new idea. It's not my idea, and it's not anything that you don't already know, but I bet you today a light's gonna go on in your head. And I just wanna be really clear that as we're looking at all this today, that the Bible is our authority on this. You see, I actually believe that the Bible is like no other book ever in history or in the future. That the Bible is uniquely, it's not like any other literature, the Bible is uniquely God's holy inspired word to you and me. Can I, can I get anybody to agree with me on that? I just need some agreement. Do you agree with me on that? Okay, so I really believe that this is like no other book. It supersedes all books. I don't mean to say that I believe that the Bible is a science book, for example. Like, okay, God created the universe. Okay, well, uh, how, why did he decide to do this molecule and that molecule, and how do they work together? I don't know. That's not for the Bible the Bible's not telling us all the how, it's telling us the who, okay? So our Bible is the superseding all total authority on all this, and if we're gonna figure out what God's word says about who he is and why he does what he does, we might as well start at the very beginning. You know this verse, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we know all that, right? We know that part, right? Okay, 
So here's the question. In the beginning, what is this the beginning of exactly? Uh, what, what, is, what is he beginning here? Is, is God just alone in the darkness before this? You know, was God bored? Was he like, eh, you know, nothing to do again today? And by the way, I haven't invented a day yet, so it's just nothing to do. So what do I, what do I do? And so is he lonely? Does he need companionship? What's going on here? Did he just one day decide to, I'm bored, I think I'll just create a universe. Is that really what's going on here? I think we've got a little, uh, got a little insight by looking at the verse itself. This verse itself gives us some insight because every single English translation says almost exactly this. And it's not exactly right. Hate to break it to you, but the original Hebrew does not include one of these words. Even though every single American translation includes the word that I'm about to point out, the original Hebrew does not include a very important word. And it's this little word right here. The, in the beginning. In other words, this is not describing the beginning. If you take out the word that wasn't there to begin with, it says simply this, in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think what this very first statement in all of scripture is trying to tell us is that God is starting something. God's starting something. This is a beginning, not the beginning. There's something that does somehow precede this. And the Bible is pretty clear about what he's doing. What is he starting? What is he doing? The Bible's actually really clear about it. In fact, especially here, you know, here in this world, we're pretty clear on what God's objectives are, what he's doing in and through us. We're pretty clear about that. But I'm trying to show you today that there's a bigger picture and it's a little less clear, right? It's a, it's a, bigger, it's a bigger picture. Um, I mean, if you just think about it, we, we have a hard time thinking outside of our box. And we're, as big as it is, we're in a pretty rigid box. We exist in a universe that is defined by pretty strict laws. Gravity. And you can't beat it. It just is what it is. Right? I mean, you, it, it just, there's laws of our universe that are pretty, pretty strict. And so it's hard for us to think outside of this universe. And so what I hope to do today is to help us look in the scripture and to connect some dots that God's already given us to see what picture it kind of draws. Is that good with y'all? Okay, so we're going to have to think outside of our box. We're going to have to get to where we can think outside of <laughs> time itself. I'm just telling you, this is going to be, it's going to be hard and we're not going to get it figured out because we are slaves of time. I'm looking around and seeing all the white hair in the room. We're slaves of time. Are we not? Can I get an amen? It's just the result right here. Here it is. All of us, uh, we exist in a, in a bubble of time and we can't really think well outside of time. Right? The scripture's clear about that. You know, now we see things imperfectly. 
Right now, our understanding is really, really limited. As technologically and scientifically advanced as we are, we, we really have a tiny, tiny little understanding, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, then, there, once we're with him, once we're outside of our bubble, we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. So we're going to try to kind of expand our minds just a little bit today. Uh, and who am I to try to expand minds? <laughs> you know, um, I'm just going to do the best I can. So when we look in Scripture, what actually is clear? What can we know about God? Psalm 93 tells us this, the Lord is king, he's robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken, but your throne, O God, has stood from time immemorial. You yourself are from the everlasting past. As strong as our world is, standing firm and not shaken, you are even better. You come from, you stood from, before time is the way I would say it today, time immemorial, the everlasting past, the past that has no beginning, no ending. You just always have been. In other words, what I believe this is telling us is that God pre-existed the universe. Can we all agree on that? He pre-existed the universe, and that means that God pre-existed time itself. All the physicists agree, all the scientists agree that time and space are bound to each other. Can't have one without the other. So prior to the universe's existence, time did not exist. So then how could there be a prior to if there's no way to measure time? Just think about that for a little while. <laughs> Call me tomorrow. Um, yeah, so here's the thing that the Bible's telling us is that God and his heavenly hosts, indescribable creatures that we can't understand that are far above us, they exist outside of time. What that means is, you know, for us being slaves to time is that everything that we think of has a before, a during, and after. Before church, what were you doing? Arguing with your family, driving here too fast, getting here in the parking lot, your last nerve, but smiling at everybody as you came in the door right? And now during, it's all you can do to hold your eyes open because the old guy's just talking, right? Just hoping when is this going to be done? And then after, you're going to go to lunch together, right? I mean, there's a before, a during, and an after. In the realm of eternity, there is no before, during, and after. It just doesn't work that way. I don't, I can't explain it, but it doesn't work that way. There's not time as we understand it, but somehow there is cause and effect. We do see that this happened, so that happened in that realm. I don't get it. I told you I'm hoping you'll expand your mind some. I've given up on mine. Whatever the case, in heaven, war breaks out, right? We all know about the war in heaven, and um, here's just a little insight into into what happens as the result. The cause is that, that this war is broken out and the result is this. See it in Isaiah 14. In that wonderful day when the Lord gives his people rest from sorrow and fear, 
from slavery and chains. You will taunt the king of Babylon. You will say, the mighty man has been destroyed. Yes, your insolence has ended, for the Lord has crushed your wicked power and broken your evil rule. This passage is one of those passages in Scripture where the scholars and the rabbis will tell you that it has a specific earthly meaning. It's talking about an earthly king, the king of Babylon, at a specific time. But it also points to God telling us something greater. It's pointing to that bigger picture, something that he's doing outside of these particular circumstances. So it's talking about this day when there will be no more sorrow, no more fear, no more slavery, no more chains. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? And this king, this mighty man, will be destroyed. This will all be over as this has been destroyed and your insolence has ended. The Lord will crush your wicked power and break your evil rule. Yeah, it's talking about Babylon, but it's talking about something more also for us. There's a lot of verses like this. Look at this one in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most dead. You'll be brought down to the place of the dead, to its lowest depths, and everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? You see that? It's talking about something, but it's talking about something more. This ruler who is cast out, look at this. I'm gonna look back at it again here real quick. This phrase, shining star, may not mean a lot to you right here. The Hebrew term is Hillel, means shining star. If you get a Greek copy of the Old Testament, you'll see the word phosphoros. What, what, what word is this in English? Okay. In Latin, the word for shining star is the word that we use as Lucifer, right? You are fallen, O Lucifer, O shining star, son of the morning. So the scholars say there's more to this than just this, more than just face value. However you interpret this passage, you'll learn that a shining star ruler is cast out. The war has happened and there's been a ruler cast out, a clearly arrogant ruler, someone who thought he was all that. He was a ruler who was ruled himself by pride. Thought, I can climb up to the heights of God. I can set my throne up above there. I can be a better God than God can be. In other words, I believe, I believe that the war in that realm broke out because of this ruler's question. And the question is this, does God deserve to be God? Man, if I'm taking notes today, this is what I'm writing down, because this is the question. This is the question that, as you'll see, that, that results in everything. 
does God deserve? Is he worthy of being who he claims to be? In Ezekiel 28, another passage that's more than the surface meaning. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man, give the prince, that's the prophet here, son of man is the prophet, give the prince of Tyre, so it's a ruler, this message from the sovereign Lord. Here's the message. In your great pride, you claim, I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. But you're only a man and not a God, though you boast that you are a God. You regard yourself as wiser than Daniel, and you think no secret is hidden from you. With your wisdom and understanding, you have amassed great wealth, gold and silver for your treasuries. Yes, your wisdom has made you very rich, and your riches have made you very proud. Yeah, I skipped it. Yeah, I skipped it. Okay, good. So you, clearly you can see that he's talking about a king, but a king in the heart of the sea you know, a king that is, is wealthy beyond all and is more prideful than all. He goes on to the same king. He says, give a further message. Um, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Can you see how the scholars are saying there's more to this than this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. And he lists a bunch of those beautiful, beautiful stones. And he says, all of them, all of them were beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I God ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and you walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. So the progression is this. The question is asked, is God worthy of being God? Does God deserve to be God? I could be a better God than he is. War breaks out, and this ruler is cast out. Jesus himself seems to refer to this event in Luke 10, when the 72 disciples had been sent out to do miracles and healings themselves. They came back to Jesus, and they reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And here's Jesus' interesting response. He says, yeah, yeah, of course they did. Come on, there we go. Yeah, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And he goes on and he says, look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy so you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure The enemy had a lot of authority, but he delegates that authority now to the believers because 
that ruler has been cast out. Are you with me so, still so far? Yeah. All right, so I'm building a case about this ruler. Let me look in Revelation and see a little bit more. This is where the terrors begin. It's where the tribulation really gets painful. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from all the smoke. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. So the the star that had been cast out unlocks the pit, and from the pit comes this king. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. Dude, that's spooky. And this evil destroyer is under the authority now of this star that has been cast out. Revelation 12 it goes on a little bit later, and he says, I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads, and his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. War in heaven. A third of the angelic host rebels. And you see their judgment to some degree here. All this because of this question, does God deserve to be God? Now, I'm glad I'm not God because I'm kind of dumb <laughs> and I'm impatient and I want my way and I want it now. So if I'd have been God, somebody asked that question, I'd just zap him, <laughs> gone. <laughs> Teach you to ask that question, right? No one will ever ask that question again. I'm just gonna deal with it right then. But for whatever reason, God does not destroy his enemies. God does not destroy the rebellious at that moment. For whatever reason, God, instead of destroying them, God decides to answer the question. Instead of proving that he's God in a harsh, cruel way, God decides to answer that question in a different way than I would ever have dreamed. So God wrote a book. Everybody hold up your Bible. Hold it up, your digital Bible or your paper Bible. Hold it up. Come on, that's five of you. Come on, hold it up. Okay, look at it. Look at it for me. Just look at it. God wrote a book. That's not the book. That's not it. When, when we know that God wrote a book, we think that he's only written one book, but he's the king of kings, lord of lords. What You think he's only got one book to his name? He is a prolific author, and he's written more than one book. So the Bible is not the book that he writes. God writes a book to answer his question. We'll talk about the book in a little bit, but he writes it out, and then Bruce, for whatever reason, he closes the book, and he seals the book, and then he puts it away. He just puts it on the shelf for now. It's just gonna stay there untouched, sealed, closed. Nobody knows what's in it. It's just closed. And then, after he writes the book, comes, let there be light. Question asked, war breaks out, Lucifer cast out, book written, and then let there be light. Are you getting the progression so far? 
So God creates this entire universe with his words. And what is the purpose of the universe? What's the one job of the universe? Hint, same job as the four bizarre creatures. To praise God, right? The function of the universe is to reflect and to praise God, to reflect the glory of God and praise God, right? It's what scripture tells us, Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a word or a sound. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Psalm 150 says, let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord, praise the Lord. First Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. So God speaks this universe into existence to praise him, to reflect his glory, to say you are worthy of being God. God's answer is he writes a book and he, uh, he creates the universe. That's the first part of his answer, especially the part that you and I like the most, his image bearers. Above all else, above the mountains, above the oceans, above the sunrise and the sunset, above the stars and the skies and the galaxies, our voice praises God and declares his glory and his worthiness of being God. Am I right? That's who we are. That's what we do. Sort of. <laughs> because right after that, you know what happens. You know the story. The serpent. I believe this same ruler now in the form of a serpent <coughs> for the purpose of deceiving was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that God had made. One day, the serpent asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? And you know, at first she's like, well, yeah, we don't touch that, we don't touch that. If we touch it, we'll die, right? Death fruit, we don't want that. And then the serpent says, uh, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. In other words, isn't this the same question? Does God really deserve to be God? He's holding out on you because you could be God. You could be just as good of a God as he is. And he knows if you eat that fruit, that's exactly what you're gonna become. You can ascend to the highest of heights. You can rule from on high. Does God deserve to be God? I don't think so. I think you do. And we fell for it. Hard. Satan continues to ask this question. Lucifer continues to ask this question. Does God deserve to be God? And he's asking it right here in the garden because he thinks he's got God right where he wants him. Right? He really thinks that he can make his case to us and to all of the heavenly creatures because he thinks that God can't make something that he can't break. 
God can't make something I can't break. Just give me a minute with these gullible image bearers. Let me just ask the right questions and I can break everything. And sure enough, that's what happened in Genesis 3, right? We rebelled against God. And these are just some of the results. I mean, when I think of the world today, I don't think very good. I mean, there's beautiful aspects of it. Boy, I mean, there's some incredible, amazing things. But most of our existence has to do with this. Am I right? Does God love these things? Hello, does God love this? Let me just say it. God hates these things. These are the things against which the wrath of God is coming. God's coming to destroy all of that because it is not what he intended. It's not what he created. He made this very, very, very good thing that pleased him, and now it's all a big disaster. And he's furious about it. And he's going to set it right one day. But Satan thinks he's got him right where he wants him. He knew that he could convince Eve and that we would fall and that we would become rebellious sinners. And here's why he's got God right where he wants him. If God condemns the world he just created, he's unmerciful and therefore not worthy of being God. But if he condones the world he just created, then he's unjust and not worthy of being God. Case made, Lucifer wins, right? The enemy thinks that he's proven his case against God, that God is in fact not worthy. But the good news is that God has a plan in place. Right, in Isaiah, we see this. God says, everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. God has a plan. You might look at your life this week, and you might think, well, the house isn't selling. You know, the sickness won't go away. The kids won't be quiet. He won't come back. She won't get off. And you might think it's all a disaster, but the good news is God has a plan. He has a plan in place. Let's look just a little bit about what he says about it. He says you can make many plans. You can make your plans. You can list with the realtor. You can take your family to therapy. You can go to, you can go to celebrate recovery. You can make all your plans you want, but it's the Lord's purpose that will prevail. God says, I have a plan for the whole earth, a hand of judgment upon the nations. And the Lord of heaven's armies has spoken. Who can change his plans? I'm trying, in your, in your minds, I'm trying to put God in his place. Where is he? He's above it all. He's God. Who can change his plans? He says, sorry, it says in Romans 8, Paul writes, uh, we now know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for him. This is such a beautiful passage. We love it. And we know that God's good, working together for the good, means that they work through his purpose for them. Right? God's purpose is for good. 
In other words, God started something that he's still working. He is the author and the finisher. So all that to say, fast forward now to judgment day and God unseals his book. Remember that book he put away? That book that he wrote early, early, early on? Remember that book? He unseals his book. And when he unseals his book, his ultimate plan is finally, fully revealed. His ultimate plan, when revealed on Judgment Day, will take this misunderstanding of who God is and will prove once for all that he is neither unmerciful nor unjust, but God is a God of perfect mercy and a God of perfect justice. Right, in Romans, we'll see a little bit into what this book tells us. This is not from that book, but this reveals what that book ultimately says. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Who is an everyone? Anybody an everyone here? Okay, everyone sinned. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift of Jesus leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life to everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So I don't know what all this book tells us that God has written that's been sealed all this time, but I know what the result will be. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. But he also describes that place as being prepared from before the creation of the world. How can that be? Remember, remember, when we try to think outside of time, things get really weird. So Jesus can both have prepared it ahead of time and be going to prepare it because he's eternal. Do you get it? You do? I don't get it. I don't understand it, but yet it's possible. So um, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before all of this disaster, God had a plan and it was in place. Look at this. 
Uh, for only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. Peter says, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. When did God choose to let Jesus be the sacrifice of your sins? Yeah, before, long before the world began. God has had this plan in place all along. Good grief. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it. Can I get an amen? amen. But because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. This is all just a little hint into this book, this book that he's about to unseal on Judgment Day, that he takes off the shelf or, or whatever it is, and he opens this book. So Judgment Day happens, he opens the book, and I still, I still don't know all that's in there, but look what happens when the book is opened. This sealed book that's been sealed since when? Before what? Before time began, before the world was created, this book that he wrote, before let there be light, he opens it and here's what happens. All, the, all that dwell on the earth will worship the beast. So everybody on the world is worshiping the beast. That is everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The book that he reaches for and unseals is called the book of life of the lamb who was slain, the lamb's book of life. And so what we do know about this book is this book contains a list of names. Before God even created the universe, God wrote out the names of those that would be present on judgment day. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Dude, that's Daniel in the Old Testament. So what we see is that God has given a list of names of people, my name, your name is written in that book that he will not unseal until judgment day. In other words, in other words, God says, you think I'm not worthy of being God? Did you see all that happened? Let there be light, lie in the garden, rebellion, and then nothing but a history of disaster. You thought you broke it all. But today we come to this place and look at this, look at this. <laughs> See, I wrote all this down before it even began. God created a problem that only he could solve. 
That's what this is. God created a problem that only the one true holy God could possibly solve. But here's the thing. It's not only that book, but you have a book that will be opened also. Yeah, there's a book of you that will be opened on that day. You know this, right? John says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and the earth and sky fled from his presence. That's how great he is. The sky is scattering around him, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne and the books were open, including the book of life. That's the big one we've been talking about, but there's also other books, your book and my book. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in their books. Your book is a ledger book of you. And the sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead and all were judged according to their deeds. And then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Woo! This lake of fire is the second death and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What this is saying, what this is saying <laughs> is that, yep, one day, Susie, you're going to be standing before God in judgment, and he's going to have your ledger and go, dude, 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 really? Are you serious about this? But then he's going to check over in the Lamb's Book of Life, and Susie, he's going to see your name there. And he's going to say, everything in this book, canceled. I don't look at that. I just look at this. You are covered in the blood of the Lamb. Enter into your rest. Come on. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Because for all of us, for all of us, there's not a single person in this room who want our ledgers opened. Am I right? But no matter what's been recorded in there, it is all canceled when you're covered in the blood of the Lamb of God. Covered and closed. Praise the Lord. But what this really, really means for me, here's what this means for me. Uh, when I look at this and when I'm trying to communicate this is that judgment day involves you, but it's not about you. Okay, judgment day involves you, but it's not about you. What do you mean by that, Steve? What I mean is that on judgment day, God finally answers the big question. What's the big question? Is God worthy of being God? Does he deserve to be God? This is the moment where God, it's in, in this moment with the books open that God finally answers the big question. Ephesians 1, Paul describes, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Here we go. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety 
to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. <sighs> Judgment day isn't as much proving to God who you are. Who's God talking to? God is using the church to display his wisdom to what? All the unseen rulers and authorities with wings and eyes and everybody in the heavenly host in the heavenly place, uh, places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's answering the question by using the church. He's answering the question by saying, you think I'm not worthy of God? You want to see the answer of whether I'm worthy or not? Well, you just look at Bruce. You just look at him. You know who he was. You saw his ledger. You saw what he had done, and you look who he is today. He is covered by the blood of the lamb. I've transformed him. I've changed him. I have sanctified that dude, and now he's going to heaven with me because of what I've done. You couldn't do that. All you can do is break and destroy, but I heal and restore. God alone is worthy of being God. And so what he does is he uses the church, he uses me and you. He says, you wanna see how worthy I am, how good I am? You just look, you just look at these guys. Look at this one, look at that one. He's pointing to you. In other words, we, you and I, are God's answer. The way God answers the question, God, are you worthy of being God? He just goes, huh? He ain't got to tell it. All he's got to do is show it. We are God's answer. Because of Jesus, we are the proof that God is worthy. Whew. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. It says, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you and I have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Come on, God points to us. I know who I am. I know who I pretend to be. I know I can never show, I don't have worthy in myself and I sure can't point to the worthiness of God but he covers me in his blood and he makes me new. He cleanses me, he restores me, he heals me. I love the way Paul summarizes the whole thing in Ephesians 1. This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything under the authority of Christ, everything on heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, We've received an inheritance from God. We looked at this earlier. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. His great plan is to bring everything under the authority of Christ because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. Can I get an amen on that? 
So 1 Chronicles tells us, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. In Revelation 4, it says, Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Psalm 96, great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 96, the gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. Is that who we are? Are we beautiful examples of God's great majesty and glory. Is my life a life that he can point to and say, you wanna see how great I am? Look at that dude. Look at what I'm doing in his life. My desire is that I just live a life worthy of the calling that he's put on my life. And that's my desire for you too, that you understand who you are and that you live it out because he alone is worthy of all praise and all glory. Amen.